As I said, this is our, our last week in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Next week, we begin a sermon series on the book of Daniel that will bring us all the way to Advent. And during Advent, the four Sundays prior to Christmas, we're going to remain in the Old Testament and spend the four weeks of Advent exploring the four chapters of the book of Ruth. So we have some time in the Old Testament ahead of us. But this week, we are still in the New Testament as we wrap up Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in this last section of his letter, the operative word for Paul is stand. In verses 10 and 11, Paul writes, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. In verse 13, he writes, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. And from there, he goes on to describe each piece of what he calls the armor of God, the belt and breastplate, shoes and shield, helmet and sword. Paul ends his letter to the Ephesians with a call to battle, like a general inspiring his soldiers before war. Stand your ground. Do not cede even an inch to the enemy. Keep alert and keep going and we will be victors. It's striking, one scholar writes, that A letter which in its first half depicts the peace produced by the gospel should in its second half conclude with an emphasis on war. And it is striking. The operative word for the first three chapters of Paul's letter is not stand, but sit, rest in Jesus. There he writes that through faith in Jesus, you have been raised to new life in the middle of this life. And when Jesus ascended into the heavens beyond the fray of this world, You rose there with him so that even though you're sitting here now in these lawn chairs and on this grass, you are simultaneously sitting with Jesus in the heavenly places, which means that no matter what happens to you in this life, your life in Jesus will endure forever. It will be a life of fulfillment and joy and endless discovery within a world redeemed and made new again. This is the hope that cannot be taken from you an inheritance that was guaranteed to you when the Holy Spirit took up residence within you like a down payment that God has put on your soul to be paid in full when we die and leave this world as we know it. We belong to Jesus and our lives are his reward for the work of redemption that he accomplished in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So as you live in this world, rest in him. Sit with Jesus as you scurry about faithfully completing the work he's given you to do. These are words of comfort. And for three chapters, Paul writes such assurances to the Ephesians. His only command is to sit in the warmth of these words. Let the gospel sink down deep into your hearts and live there. The peace and the the praise of Jesus Christ is the beginning of the Christian life. And in chapter four, though, The image changes from sit to walk. Chapter 4, verse 1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Chapter 4, verse 17. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Rather, chapter 5, verse 1. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And chapter 5, verse 8. Walk as children of light. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Having been raised to new life in the middle of this life, we must learn to walk in ways that are consistent with our new life by putting to death the deadly habits of our old one. While our stories in this world are yet to unfold before us, we have already seen what is our end in Jesus Christ. We will be made like him, victorious, sinless, perfect, and free. Therefore, regardless of what shape our lives take, we have a common end to pursue in Jesus Christ. And the powerless can pursue him just as well as the powerful. God shows no partiality. But the call goes out that every Christian is to to walk into your future, to walk into Jesus Christ, into whose image you are being made. And finally, Paul ends with stand. Stand your ground. Put on the armor that God has given you and refuse to retreat. And in his decision to use the word stand, Paul is saying that the, the Christian life requires a certain level of obstinacy and intentionality, and even aggression, because there's a a war being waged for your soul. And I recognize how paranoid this sounds, that to those who hold a a modern scientific Western worldview, the the idea of demons working behind the scenes in this world in order to lead you away from a life of faith in Jesus perhaps sounds kooky or or paranoid. But this is one area where I'm willing to sound paranoid, because it's true. Uh, perhaps a, a more palatable way to talk about this is, is to talk about a war for your attention and not a war for your soul. Because it's not paranoid to say that there is a war for your attention. In fact, and I've quoted this here before, Reed Hastings, the chief executive of Netflix, was quoted in a 2018 article in the Wall Street Journal, readily acknowledging, boasting perhaps, that because of the addictiveness of its shows, the company was competing with sleep on the margins. You get that. Netflix views your sleep as its biggest competitor. More than Amazon, Hulu, Disney Plus, your sleep is Netflix's number one competitor, which means that success for Netflix would be if you didn't sleep. Ideally, you would spend all day and all night streaming movies and shows on Netflix. Perhaps they've already won. I'm willing to bet that this mentality is not exclusive to Netflix either. But that pretty much every social media platform or streaming service out there is competing not only with one another, but with your sleep itself for every second of your time and attention. Reed Hastings just happens to be the only one with the gall to say it out loud. There's indisputably a war for your attention. But is that really any different than a war for your soul? How you spend your time shapes who you are. The person who doesn't speak to God in prayer all day, but spends three to four hours on Netflix, communing more with Walter White than with Jesus Christ, is being formed, but not into the image of Jesus Christ. The person who doesn't read a word of scripture, but mindlessly scrolls through their Twitter feed anytime there's a moment of inaction, is being formed, but not in a life of discipline and virtue. And now I'm not calling Reed Hastings a devil or any of these companies demonic. And I'm not being legalistic here, but I am trying to point out along with Paul that there is no neutral territory in this world. There is no end to the flesh and blood or brick and mortar players in this world who are actively engaged in a war for your attention and at least passively involved in the war for your soul. Because as Paul points out in verse 12, The Christian is engaged in a struggle, not with flesh and blood, not even with brick and mortar, 
but with the spiritual forces of evil who use these things, who leverage everything they can in in this world against you. You are always being formed and in many cases malformed depending upon the end towards which you're being moved. James K. Smith is a philosopher who points out that the church doesn't own exclusive rights to the use of liturgy in order to form its people. In fact, there are cultural liturgies all around us, he says, that make promises to us and form us towards some secular and ultimately unsatisfying end. And so a certain amount of awareness, awakeness, obstinacy, intentionality, and even aggression is needed if you're going to stand in Jesus rather than allow the spiritual forces of this world to make you sluggish and weak as you walk in Christ. The reason I chose Psalm 1 as a complimentary Old Testament passage to be read this morning is because Psalm 1-1 uses the same three words that appears in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, sit, walk, and stand. But they appear in Psalm 1 in order to show the process by which a person slowly drifts away from the faith. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. At first, they're only walking in the counsel of the wicked, naively listening to poor advice or thoughtlessly participating in the presumed activities of this world. But eventually they lose momentum and they become stationary, standing in the way of sinners. Before finally they find themselves sitting no longer with Jesus, but in the seat of scoffers. It's a slow loss of momentum that the psalmist pictures here. And indeed, this is how it often plays out in real life. In his book, Soul Searching, the sociologist Christian Smith explores the religious lives of teenagers. And at one point, he's discussing the reasons why teenagers who consider themselves non-religious left the faith in which they were raised as children. And he writes this, half of non-religious teens who leave the faith in which they were raised do so for seemingly significant emotional and intellectual reasons. And half, half drop out or lose their faith for what sound like rather unremarkable reasons. The former were positively incredulous, upset, or disillusioned, while the latter half seemed to have simply drifted away. The schemes of the devil are therefore sometimes overt and sometimes subtle to the point of being unnoticeable. Life just happens and momentum to pursue Jesus erodes away. The simple disruption of a discipline like prayer or attending church even can initiate the loss of momentum captured in the opening verse of Psalm 1. And into this fog, Paul's voice breaks through. Stand up, stand, wake up. He's calling us to action. But he knows better than to appeal to us alone. He knows our weaknesses. Therefore, in his call to action, he points not to us, but to Jesus Christ. Look at how far he's brought you. Look at what he's done for you. It's by his strength that you stand and by his might that you will be victorious for he's still fighting for you. Stand up therefore for he's standing with you as he intercedes on your behalf before God the Father. It's through Jesus that we have become acceptable and have been made holy in God's sight and it's all by grace. But this grace is given to us to motivate and to animate us in joy, piercing the sluggishness and the laziness of our flesh 
so that we become unsatisfied with letting our faith operate in the background as a given any longer, but instead take action and prepare for battle in this world, putting on truth and righteousness, readiness and faith, salvation and the spirit of God, meditating upon scripture and praying at all times and with all perseverance. Paul's call to put on the armor of God is a call to to basic Christian activity and an intentional pursuit of Jesus. It isn't a complicated call, but it is a difficult one in a world that's vying not only for your attention, but for your soul. And what we need is resolve and obstinacy, commitment and discipline. Otherwise, there'll be a drift that occurs. Commit to attending church, even when a pandemic has upset your Sunday rhythm and you've come to rather enjoy your free time on Sunday mornings. We're going to explain this more in the congregational meeting next Sunday, but commit to coming to prayer on Wednesday evenings. Commit to fasting one day a week. Commit to memorizing one verse a month. Commit to saying the Lord's Prayer daily. Commit to something. Stand for something. Otherwise, you're floating and being carried by the currents of this world. The Christian life does not call for floating, but for standing. Christianity must be the most important and evident fact and common reality about us. And our activities must reflect that. Otherwise, we're standing without armor in a world that is set on our undoing. We need to reevaluate our priorities, particularly the priorities we are communicating to our children. Christian Smith observed from his many interviews with teenagers all over the country that in the ecology of American adolescents' lives, religion clearly operates in a social structurally weak position, competing for time, energy, and attention, and often losing against other more dominant demands and commitments, particularly school, sports, television, and other electronic media. And he wrote this before the smartphone was invented. These are hard decisions, I know. But think of them as putting armor on not only yourself, but on your children. Because Paul's speaking to us as his children here. And in love, he challenges us to sit in Christ, dwell in him, sit in the comfort of the gospel, to walk into him, to become what you are, to become what you have been made in Jesus Christ, and to stand in him in all obstinance and confidence Because whatever happens to us in this life will be swallowed up by joy in the next. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.